Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. My guest on this episode is Aaron Shannon, who runs the blog, The Impatient Gardener. Before we get to the discussion, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Erica R., Kelton M., Nicholas H., and Garden Fork, and supporters Michael W., Dutch Girl, and Johan. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. I want to note that I recorded this interview on May 30th and am now posting it on June 28th, 2017. I note this because later in the interview, Erin talks about the timing of starting plants indoors where she lives in southeastern Wisconsin. And now my conversation with Erin, the impatient gardener. Tell us, you know, tell the listeners here where where you're where you live and uh, tell us a little bit about your garden because we're going to mostly talk about your garden today. So I live in southeastern Wisconsin, right on the shores of Lake Michigan, which puts us in sort of a strange or different climate. Everything starts a little slower here in spring, but we have very long falls because it takes so long for Lake Michigan to warm up. So we have very cold springs, uh, but once the lake warms up, it stays warm for a while. So we get um, a little bit milder winters, actually, compared to people who live even, you know, 10 miles inland from us. And my garden is, um, we live on about an acre and a third, and I would say a good portion of that is wooded. And over the years, I have turned a lot of what's left into gardens, probably more gardens than I probably should have because I have a tough time keeping up with all of them. But um, they're just, and I've got perennial gardens and I do, I do everything, annuals, perennials, vegetables, the, the whole thing. What was the land like before you started gardening it? Um, when we moved in, the only gardens in it were kind of wrapped around the patio. There was a collection of ornamental grasses that had kind of run wild and were all about six feet tall. And halfway through the summer, they would all flop over and would all just kind of lay there for the rest of the summer and seem to harbor a large mouse population. <laughs> And then there was one sort of derelict area that I think used to be a vegetable garden and then someone kind of stuck a shrub or two in it, but mostly it was just weeded over and there wasn't much there and that's it. And so we've, we've, everything that's here now we've created, we ripped out those ornamental grasses after a year and everything else we've created. What would you suggest to people who have just got a house in terms of what have you learned over those years and what mistakes have you made in the process of, of turning that land into a, a, a very beautiful garden? I've made so many mistakes, but I think, you know, mistakes are good. That's the best way to learn. Once you make a really bad mistake, you know, you won't do it again. You know, they always say that when you sort of end up with a new garden, whether you inherit it or own it or buy it or however you get to a garden that you're not familiar with, the first thing you should do for a year is just kind of let everything sit and see see what comes up. And I think that's really good advice. I will say that I would have gone a little crazy if I didn't do anything in the garden. So that first year that we moved in, I just kind of planted up a few containers and sort of stuck containers and holes around the place just so I sort of felt like I was doing something and kind of put my stamp on something. And then I sort of watched to see what would pop up. There was a crocus here or there that popped up and if there was anything really worth saving, which with the exception of 
two peonies that were here. You know, that's the only thing I think that exists from the original garden. Um, but other than that, you know, that's that's a big one. And I would say in terms of lessons learned, the biggest lessons I've learned is about weeds because one weed in particular like has me on the verge of thinking I should sell the house and move it so mm. bad. And that's um, creeping bellflower. And I remember seeing it and I looked at it, it had this pretty kind of spiky purple flower. And I thought, and I sort of hearkened back to what maybe like a sixth grade biology teacher or somebody had once said in which they said, a weed is only a plant that someone doesn't love. And I thought, well, that's a pretty flower. So I don't care if it's technically a weed. I think it's pretty. So I let that bloom. And I've subsequently found out that that flower has up to 3,000 seeds per plant, that it spreads readily, and it spreads by rhizomes underneath the ground. Oh, boy. So it goes everywhere. It's in the grass. And when you dig it up, every time you break one of those rhizomes, it creates more plants. So that is really like the biggest lesson I learned. So I would probably say if, if when you don't know if it's a weed or a plant, A, try to figure it out either through a book or the internet or a gardening, a local gardening, someone who's into gardening locally, that's a great person because they can usually point and say, that's a weed. And then, you know, just trust in that and do something about it. At least don't let it flower until you're positive of what it is, because I could have saved myself a lot of headaches had I paid a little bit more attention to what other, because I was told what it was um, and I didn't pay any attention. <laughs> I thought I knew better. So that was a, that was a, a that was a good ego check right there. <laughs> So it's sort of an unending problem, right? Is there, there's no easy solution to this one? There is no easy solution to that one. And it's interesting. I think, I think something, we had a very mild winter and I think there must be something with, with winters that keep it in check a little bit because I'm seeing it everywhere. And I'm hearing from a lot of people who haven't seen it before, who are finding it all over their gardens. So I think perhaps it does a little, it, it falters a little bit in very difficult winters. And we haven't had one of those um, in a while. So um, yeah, it's, it, it runs rampant. And, and I will say I am um, an organic gardener entirely with the asterisks of that weed. It is the only thing I have ever used glycophosphate on uh, roundup on because i can't figure out how to get rid of it otherwise and when i the only time i've done it is when it's in actual garden beds and i have you know donned all my safety gear and i actually take a foam a cheap foam paintbrush type thing and a little cup of roundup and i actually brush it on the individual leaves and that's the only time i've ever used the stuff I feel the same about Bermuda grass here. That's the one thing I will use that for as well. There are some exceptions to my yeah. my, my rules too. You know, we had, uh, it's interesting you said that this, this just showed up because we had Bidens, a very common weed, show up for the very first time. And I had the same reaction you did. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that is. And I'm really regretting that, too. But at least it's easier to pull. Uh, but it, it, it makes, I mean, this is the thing about some weeds, right? They'll make like 20,000, 30,000 seeds. That's, that's why they're so successful, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yep. So in addition to the garden, you also uh, have a little cottage that you've been working on and people can see on your blog. To say, say a little something about your house. So our house was built in um, 1934. It was sold to us as a three as a three bedroom one bath, um, but the the bedrooms it's it's small. It's probably I would say 
it's less than 1400 square feet for sure and um, we lived in it for 10 years and then we did a, a pretty major renovation to it in which we took it's a sort of a Cape Cod style so half of the house has two stories and then there's a sort of a living room with a tall ceiling in it and five years ago we took off the top of the house and we basically raised it up and stuck it back on but what we did was we created way more usable space by doing that we had, there were kind of hip roofs that when we when we moved in we chose which side of the bed we would each have because my husband was too tall to get to one side of the bedroom yeah. without hitting his head on the ceiling so by raising up the ceiling and putting in a shed dormer on one side we were able to keep the same two bedrooms that we had always had upstairs but we added in a walk-in closet and we were able to add a, ba a bathroom upstairs which was sort of life-changing that was a big deal and then we added a little deck off the back at the same time and it was a big deal it was kind of something we had wanted to do from the time we bought the house um, it was just sort of a matter of finding finding the right time for that to happen and we've loved it. it's it's perfect we turned it into the perfect house for us any any thoughts about home remodeling looking back on on all those years for for people who are just bought a house yeah you know i will say i think home remodeling is a lot like looking at a garden i think you definitely want to take your time and know exactly how you're going to use the house and what you really really need before you go down that road of remodeling even if it's not that pleasant to sort of live in for a certain amount of time um, because i think we waited well, 10 years after we bought the house. And I think that that helped us make very informed decisions about exactly what we needed. We didn't need huge bedrooms um, because we are all we do in the bedroom is sleep in there. So we didn't, we didn't need like a lounging area in our bedroom or somewhere to read a book in our bedroom. So, and those are things that I think when we originally bought a house, we were like, oh, well, wouldn't a big bedroom be nice? We never would have used that space. So by living in the house for as long as we did, we really knew exactly what we needed. And um, and we also knew that we didn't need a huge bathroom with double sinks. Um, we knew that, you know, a single sink and a smaller bathroom would work fine for us. And I don't know that we would have made those same decisions if we had renovated sooner. So waiting for us was, was I think, helped us make a lot of good decisions about what we needed. Um, of course, you know, there were it was very stressful. I think every renovation is stressful. It took, you know, probably 25%, 30% longer than it was supposed to. And the budget probably ended up about that much over as well, even though we thought we had added in extra. And working with a contractor, who we had a very good contractor, but I think working with every contractor, that can be a little, um, communication-wise, that can be a little challenging. So all of those things were things we sort of learned like everyone does on their renovation. But in the end, you know, we're happy. There's a few decisions that we made at the very end of that remodeling process when I think we were sort of suffering from decision fatigue that we're not happy with. But they're minor, and we can live with them. And if we really, really were bugged by them, we could change them. Now, wait, by way of background, uh, you have an interesting day job, which um, I will refer people to Eric uh, Rochow's uh, podcast, Garden Fork, to hear more about what your other passion is. But why don't you say just a little something about what else you do? So I am uh, the editor of a magazine called Sailing Magazine, and that is sort of my first passion. I grew up sailing. 
Um, I do a lot of, um, these days, my sailing usually takes the form of racing sailboats on the Great Lakes, but we'll do a little cruising here and there, and we'll try to get to the Caribbean um, in winters every once in a while, Um, and I have a nice job that sort of allows me to do some of those things under the auspices of work, so I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, so I'm I'm very lucky. I have I have all these these passions that I'm that I'm able to pursue, and I enjoy doing the things that that also qualifies my career. I have great respect for sailing. Having having failed out of sailing lessons, so uh, oh, no. can, yeah, no, it's not easy. People don't. It looks easy, but it ain't. <laughs> no, it's not easy. But I think sometimes that that's kind of the charm of sailing. Because sometimes there's a certain amount of satisfaction in doing something that doesn't necessarily come easily. You know, you really feel like you, when you when you figured something new out, and it's one of those things that you are constantly learning at. Nobody knows it all, um, and I think there's a certain amount of satisfaction that come in in hobbies and pursuits in which there's constant learning. And I think gardening's a lot like that too, actually. You never know it all. And I think there's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes in taking on something that, that isn't the easiest thing in the world to do. Exactly. Now, back to gardening. Uh, you have a beautiful, I think it's a pear espalier, is that right, on the fireplace? Uh, I do. Yeah, there's yes, a post you did about that. Tell us about that espalier pear. I just planted that this year, and um, that has been a really difficult spot. I've had a few other things in that spot and I never was really happy with what was planted there and I think some of those things that I planted there weren't happy. So I've always wanted an espalier fruit tree. I think they're beautiful. They're a little bit of a more formal look I think so I never really knew how that would quite fit into sort of my generally cottage style garden that I have going on here. But when I sort of had that idea for that area because I thought that would look beautiful going up the fireplace on the side of our house. So I looked specifically for an Asian pear uh, because their flowers are supposed to be um, a little bit larger and a little prettier. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's some of the research that I did suggested that. So I, I spent a lot of time calling nurseries looking for an espalier pear, espalier Asian pear and found one locally and just planted that a few weeks ago. So I hope it thrives there. It's a sort of it's a sort of southwestern exposure, but we have a lot of trees on our property. So my only concern is that I think it'll be okay. I don't know that I it's going to fruit exceptionally well because it probably could use a little bit more more sun than it has to fruit very well. I'm less concerned about the fruit to be honest with you. It's more of an ornamental thing for me. Now, related to that, you had a very interesting post on how to plant a tree. I think it's called How to Plant a Tree a New Way. Uh, did you plant that pear tree that way? And, and can you tell, you, tell us about how you, uh, your philosophy on, on planting trees? You know, for years, the, the advice on planting a bald and burlap tree was to basically leave all of the stuff that comes that holds a tree together a bald and burlap tree together leave it all on maybe cut off the top part of the burlap and sort of loosen up all the ties on it and plunk it in a hole in the ground and they always said don't worry about it that burlap will disintegrate and the roots will spread out and there's actually been some research done on this and and it shows what i think a lot of people who look at that might suspect which is that that's not really what happens because it takes a very long time for that burlap to disintegrate 
And it takes a long time for those roots to get out of there. And on top of that, bald and burlap trees tend to be planted in what is essentially 100% clay because it's the only type of soil that will hold a ball. If you have a very loose soil, of course, it's not going to hold together. So trees and shrubs don't like to leave what they're used to. So if a tree is grown in clay, it's not going to be real comfortable i don't like to give trees the what's that word um uh, amorphize where you give a inanimate object the characteristics of a human being trees don't have brains but tree roots don't like to spread out into area that they're not familiar with because they're used to what they're used to so the idea is you get a bald and burlap tree you root wash the entire thing meaning you re- carefully remove all of the soil that's around it to take it down to what is essentially a bare root tree and this is a process that you do through soaking it and very carefully washing off all the roots but you do it quickly it's not like it's not like you have a fully leafed out tree that's sitting around bare rooted for days you wouldn't want to do that and then you replant it in your soil and it's not amended soil it's the soil that is where it's going to grow for the rest of its life. You don't give it a nice little comfy hole full of all sorts of compost and manure and all those things that they used to tell you. you know, the adage used to be put a $5 plant in a $25 hole. And that's, according to newer studies, that theory is out the window now. The idea is you want that tree to just suck it up and get used to it because you're planting a tree for the long haul. You want this tree to be around for years and years and years to come. And therefore it's going to need to be able to spread out its roots and really take hold and get those feeder roots down deep or out far, depending on what kind of, how the roots on that particular tree grow. So that's what I did with this tree. It's the first time I've planted a tree like that. I did plant some shrubs like that last year. And I will say that getting all of that clay off of there is, it takes a while. It's not, it's not easy to do because you don't want to be harsh with it. You want to keep as many roots as you can. And of course, the thing is, is that once you plant it, it sulks a little bit. It's very traumatic for that tree. Any type of planting is, I think, traumatic for a tree or shrub, but it's, it's traumatic. And so there's a little bit of babying that goes on for a couple of weeks afterwards. I watered it a lot more than I would have something else that I planted, but we're past it. All the leaves have sort of perked back up. And now I've just gone back to how I would water any other tree, um, newly planted tree, which is I'll deeply water it once a week. for the entire summer and then um, that'll be it for this year and then hopefully it'll be established and I won't have to do any additional watering in the future. Did you prune any of the roots? I did I the only thing I did was I did some of the roots were kind of jagged so I did clean up the roots that looked I mean some of the roots actually looked like they had been sort of ripped at some point so I did clean up those roots if there had been a girdling root, that's the other thing that you can see if you bare root these trees. You can see a girdling root, and a girdling root absolutely will kill a tree every time. So had there been a girdling root, I could have gone in there then and cut that, that root out. Um, and I know that there are some shrubs that I can see now that are that I have planted, and they're not doing well, and I can see that there's a girdling root growing across the top of them, and it'll kill them eventually. So um, I did do a little bit of pruning just to kind of clean up the ends, but it's a great opportunity to look at the root structure and make sure that there's nothing that's going to cause problems in the future. And there are some studies on this, and um, in that blog post, I linked to some of those studies because I know this is a big change for people, and this is not what nurseries, most nurseries will not tell you to plant a tree like that right now either, because it's this is all sort of a new thing. To me, it makes a lot of sense, though, 
it's it's sort of a tough love situation for a treat. Get it? You're going to have to be a little harsh with it, but you get it, you nurse it through this first year, and then you've got a tree, hopefully, for decades to come. Right. I mean, essentially, I think it, it's sort of like you don't want to you don't want that hole to be a pot, right? Isn't that what, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe for the, the newbie gardeners, actually, on that note, you could maybe say what a girdling root is, because maybe not everyone knows what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So a girdling root is a root that will grow around in a circle. And that's really common if you buy something that's been living in a container. Uh, roots, when they when they outrun the area that they're in, they'll start growing around in a circle. And the same thing happens with bald and burlap trees um, and shrubs where a root will just, it kind of hits the edge and it starts going around in a circle. And at some point it will essentially cut off the entire root structure. Right now, Aaron, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, have you ever killed a plant? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> any, any gardener who's been gardening for any amount of time who tells you they've never killed a plant is probably a terrible liar or they don't really garden. <laughs> right. Because killing a plant, that's part of gardening. And you know, I I have no problem with plants dying under under my care. It happens, and sometimes it happens for good reasons. Sometimes it happens for no reason that you can figure out. Sometimes you did something really stupid. In every case, you learn something, and sometimes that's don't plant that plant. Or sometimes you learn what you might have done wrong, and sometimes it's well, bad luck happens. Yeah, and you have something that I'm not familiar with. Now, Kelly, remind, my wife, who grew up in Colorado, reminded me that, that there's something called winter <laughs> and that um, some plants don't make it, right? Isn't there a bit of suspense? Every Explain for the Southern Californian here what, what that's like. There is a great deal of suspense. You know, um, gardeners in places where we have winter – you know, we're so anxious to get out there that I don't know, probably as soon as the snow cover's gone, there's sort of this, you start walking around the garden and kind of poking around looking for any sign of life anywhere. And of course it takes a while and then things start popping up and you're thrilled that things make it through. But then you start watching a couple of things and you start thinking, hmm, that that should be growing. <laughs> Why is that not growing? Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, I mentioned earlier that we had a very mild winter. I think, and I can say this now, because basically at this point in the year, everything that's going to come up is up. So if it's not growing by now, it's it's dead. I probably lost more plants this winter than I have any other winter ever. And I think it's because we had some very warm spells and everything. Maybe there was a little bit of sort of waking up and growing that happened with the plants. And then it got rainy. And then it got cold, and I think things warmed up, and then ice sat on top of there. And most plants do not like having wet, cold, icy roots. And we had basically no snow cover. Snow is a great insulator, so as much as um, people hate snow, or many of them do, I'm not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't I'm particularly love dealing with snow, so it's a good thing I live in Wisconsin. But plants love snow. It's a great insulator. And we didn't have much of that this winter. So I lost I lost dozens of plants this winter. Wow. Are you thinking any differently about plants given the, you know, kind of reality of the climate uh, getting getting stranger? Are you are you gardening differently? I am. I used to so we are in a zone I'm technically in zone 5B and that's just this little finger that extends up the lake cuz we're a touch warmer. And I used to, as a general rule, personal rule, I used to 
almost only buy plants that were zone four because I figured we could definitely get cold enough. I, on many occasions, have bought zone six plants now. And I used to think I was wild and crazy for buying, buying a zone six plant. And I have a, a Venus dogwood that is... I believe technically a zone six plant and it's been growing here for five years. It's looking beautiful and I don't even question it that much anymore. So I'm definitely less worried about pushing zones anymore. And I think the whole, I think more winters like what we experienced are going to be the norm. So I do think that I need to be a little bit more careful about sighting things near where we walk and where snow might get piled up or ice might end up. Um, because I think what we experienced this past winter will probably become more typical. Now, you also did a post on the folly of shortcuts in the garden. Uh, oh. And I think a lot of that was about your soil. Maybe you can say something about your soil and about um, about that desire to cut corners and to have kind of like the thought that something's going to be a low-maintenance garden. Uh, maybe say something about those shortcuts. I always sort of, now that I now that I've learned this lesson, I sort of liken taking shortcuts in the garden to taking shortcuts on a painting project. You know how when you're painting something, the prep is is more than half of the job, and well, really I, the painting. I, I, is- I leave it to Kelly, who's much better <laughs> at that, and gets angry at me for yeah, exactly for doing that, cutting shortcuts with painting. It's, it's a heinous thing to do. But anyway, I'm sorry. Right. Go and, ahead. And you end up. Being- and you end up making more work for yourself in the end because yeah. you have to go back and fix the botched paint job. And then you end well, up staring at it too, you know, years later it, yeah. and hating. Yeah. So that's basically the same thing, in my opinion, of what happens in a garden. And you, know, you want to get to the fun part. The fun part is planting, right? I mean, nobody likes the weeding and the soil prep yeah. and all of those things because you want to get to the fun part. And so when I first started gardening, this was my first real garden. I had container garden before this, but this was the first garden I ever had and the first time I ever planted anything in the garden, in the ground. And so I, I cut a lot of corners. I thought, oh, there's a whole bunch of weeds, but like, I'll just quick, like take a hoe and I'll cut off the tops of them and then I'll plant this stuff. And of course, you know, all that does is make most weeds come back with a vengeance. And that was a bad idea. And the same thing goes with soil. And that sort of applies to when I planted that that pear actually we have this crazy soil here um and it seems to be a mix of places where as far as i can tell soil was brought in um, because they moved the garage at one point Mm -hmm. or they filled something in so we've got sort of some of this soil that has been moved around and then we've got other soil that's clearly native because it's primarily sand if i dig down in some parts of the garden more than a foot i get into 100 percent sand and i've I, one of the things I learned was just do the soil test. I mean, everyone says do a soil test, and I think everyone kind of rolls their eyes because is there anything <laughs> right. more boring than a soil test? But when I started doing soil tests, the things that I learned changed my whole perspective of what I needed to do in there. So what I learned was that um, my soil um, – well, first of all, my soil was far more alkaline than I thought it was. I always thought I was hovering more towards neutral. It was much more alkaline than that. And there aren't a lot of plants that love to grow in alkaline soil. So once I started adding a little bit of um, aluminum sulfate to get a little bit more acidity into the soil, that helped. I learned that I didn't have a lot of water retention going on in that soil because of just how sandy it was. So, and then with that elk, with that pear, 
that soil was even more alkaline, and I believe that's because it's alongside our fireplace. This is an old, it's like an 80-year-old house, so we've had a lot of work done of tuck pointing on that fireplace. And every time a mason comes in to work on our fireplace, they seem to just drop the old grout on the uh, soil right, right. below it mm-hmm. and just leave it. And it never occurred to me that that is, that is very, that has a ton of lime in it. Yeah, it's really bad. So what it was doing, I think, was basically poisoning the soil. So yeah. before I planted that pear, I actually dug out all of the soil where that was all in front of that fireplace put it in the woods, moved it into the woods, and then brought soil from like 10 feet away that hadn't had all this debris from fireplace work sitting in it and put it there. So it's still the native soil, but it wasn't affected by this extremely high alkalinity that was coming out just in that one specific area. And had I started doing those kinds of things, you know, 15 years ago when I started gardening here, I think my garden would be a different place, but whatever. Everyone makes mistakes, and you, f- you figure them out the hard way if, if you don't if you don't care to listen to the lessons that someone probably told me 15 years ago. I don't remember if they did or not, because that's probably how much I thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't. Yeah, I don't think the gardening books warn you about just how weird uh, any kind of soil near urban or suburban areas is. But just like you're saying, uh, our places like that too, where. You walk just a step or two away, and it's a different soil because at some point something was excavated or brought or moved or something, and it's very, very confusing at times. I think, you know, a lot of our listeners might want to know actually where you got your soil test because that's a question I get all the time is where where to have it done. So I have run all our soil tests through our local university extension, and I think that almost every state has a university extension that'll do your soil test through there. Many of them offer, ours offers a little soil kit with a bag and they tell you how to do it. But you can also just follow the directions online and mail it straight to the um, to the university soil testing lab. And what comes back is more information that you than you ever really need to know. But it does give you some really important things. And, and every soil test I've had done through the university extension has also come back with advice for amendments I might want to make to the soil, corrections I might want to make. One of the things I was shocked to find when I did a soil test on part of my garden was that I actually had too much organic matter in my soil. I I actually Mm -hmm. didn't realize that was a thing. I thought, thought, like, put it all in. I was actually up at, I think, 14% organic matter or something, and I think they were recommending more in the 7 to 10% range. So their recommendation was, you know, lay off on layering a bunch of compost in there for the next couple of years because you're good to go on the organic matter for now. So that was something I had I had never thought of. But I believe that you can also get soil tests from hardware stores. Those generally test for basic things like um, acidity level or alkalinity level um, and a few other things. But if you send it off to, and I think it cost me, I want to say $15 per test, which is pretty cheap. If, it, if you consider how much money it's probably going to save you in adding, thing to your, adding things to your soil that your soil doesn't need, it's, it's well worth spending that money. Um, and you get back this huge information and, and all these suggestions for things that you should be doing. And I think that's a big thing is that before you go blindly throwing things into your soil because you've read somewhere that all soil should have whatever amendment, just spend the money and do a soil test. You'll make it back in buying one bag of whatever additive you were going to throw in there and figure out if you really need that or not or what you really do need. 
Yeah, I wish the extension service here had that service, but it, it, it doesn't, unfortunately. So uh, consider yourself lucky. Oh, it doesn't have it there. Not That's in California. Yeah, I don't know why. But um, but yeah, you're right. Most places, they do offer that. Yeah, it's and it's a great service. You know, the other thing is that there are a lot of times if you can find, if you can kind of link up with the agriculture community, because all the agriculture community has to do soil tests all the time. Sometimes you can find out where they're doing their soil tests, and then you can send a soil test off to them and just make it clear to them that this is for a home garden, not for a field that's producing whatever, and in terms of an agricultural crop. Right. Now, how often do you, you test soil, or you just kind of test it once, and you kind of know what's going on there? How often do you retest? I only re- I probably retest, I would say, maybe every five years, but I do it or unless something, unless something strange is going on. Mm. If something strange is going on, and suddenly things in a in a whole garden are are acting a little strange and not doing what i expect then i'll do another test to make sure something funny hasn't happened now another gardening topic i um had a meltdown earlier today because squirrels ate every single peach off of our tree and um but i was reminded in preparing for this podcast that you have something far worse which is deer what Mm -hmm. what do you do about them deer are Oh, deer are terrible. Although I, I would be very frustrated if squirrels came and ate my peaches. That would be that would be terrible. But um, we live in a very intense deer population area. We're only a quarter mile from a state park, so there's just there are herds of deer that run through here. So, you know, the only one hundred—I don't even know if this is a hundred percent—but the only reliable way to deal with deer is to put an eight-foot fence around your entire property and. I don't know. That's not practical for me, and it's probably not practical for a lot of people. So we have managed – I have learned to not – there's a couple of things that I don't plant ever. Tulips are out. I will never plant a tulip in this yard unless – I may be in a pot right next to the house, maybe on the deck. But other than that, tulips are out. They will be eaten immediately. And there's a couple other plants that that have popped up over the years that I just know don't – don't plant them because they're just deer food. But I have found a couple of, I've gone through a lot of deer sprays um, in terms of deer repellent sprays. And for a while I made my own homemade, my own homemade deer repellent. It worked pretty well. It was basically um, eggs, uh, garlic, cayenne pepper, and some water in there. And you sort of let the whole thing kind of ferment and get really disgusting (laughs) in like milk jugs and then you add that to a watering can water down and then you kind of pour it all over everything and it actually worked pretty well but you had to apply it after every rain or else it was it didn't work at all Um, so I have gone to sort of commercial products for that now and I've tried several of them and they're hard because many of them um, are based on some sort of predator urine and they smell terrible they're they're foul I have found one and it's called Messina's Deer Stopper. And it smells like cinnamon and cloves. And I, I almost want to knock on wood when I say this, but I've had very, very good luck with it. And I buy it in a concentrate and I put it in a, what I like about it is that I can put it in a pump sprayer and then I can just run around the yard and spray everything. But it is the only way, and, and even that is not fail safe. They will still nibble on things on the periphery. They will still get to things on occasion, but I'm able to sort of, manage the main area by by keeping very consistent with that if i'm not consistent with that then it becomes very sad and very expensive 
And by consistent, you also have something called rain there, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, do you have to reapply every time it rains? So the directions say this product is good for 30 days, whether it rains or not. I don't trust that at all. If we get if we get a heavy rain, if it just is a sprinkle or a couple of sprinkles, I don't worry about that. If we get a heavy rain, I go out and reapply because I don't, I don't trust that it could possibly stay on there. Um, so I do go through quite a bit of it, actually. Do you now? You have some Newfoundlands, is that correct? Some very, very large dogs. Yes, we have one. We have one. We're down to one now. But oh, I'm sorry. Had, yeah. We've had we've had a total of three over our lifetime. But yes, they're they're great dogs. They they don't keep the deer away. I think it helps. They're inside. They live inside, so it's not like they're outside all the time. But I think just the presence of a dog in the yard, I do think helps. Um, a little bit. I have. There's no science to prove that whatsoever. But my personal feeling is that for the most part, it helps. I, I, I'll, however, excuse me. However, the deer around here get a little cheeky, and they will stand in the yard and stare at you from ten feet away, and just sit there oh, and eat your, eat your hostas and like look at you like, well, what are you going to do about it? And then you send the dog out there, and they're like, yeah. Well, we know that he only goes that far, and he's mm. only going to bark, so we're not that concerned. Mm-hmm. So do you not do vegetables, then? I do vegetables, but all of the vegetables that the deer will eat, I have a raised bed that has a that are that's fenced in. And next year, I'm going to plan is to redo the entire vegetable area into and put a larger fence around the vegetable area. So I put anything that's, you know, obviously any salad crops, anything like that, peas, beans, all of that goes in the fenced in area. And I've sort of figured out that zucchini and kale, I'm trying to think what else, and any sort of herbs, the deer won't touch those. So those are okay outside of fenced in area. So I have a couple of raised beds that I do anything the deer won't eat there and then they keep the fenced it raised bed for anything that's deer food so basically a, a vegetable prison it's, it's absolutely a vegetable prison that's a excellent way to describe it yeah now another interesting topic on your blog was the idea of memorial trees so what's a memorial tree so a memorial tree is a tree that you you know that people like to buy often they buy them either um in memory of someone who they've lost or um, to honor somebody. You know, a lot of people plant a tree for the birth of a child or a wedding anniversary or something like that. And I love, I love the idea of these trees. Um, But for years I resisted actually doing it in my yard because um, particularly in the case of planting a tree for someone who you've, a tree or a shrub for someone who you've lost, um, that always concerned me because I thought, what if it dies? Because, right. I mean, like that would, is there anything sadder than like sort of reliving this loss? Like I can't even keep this tree that's me- memorializing someone or something important in my life alive. And now that side too. So I was always so afraid I would kill it. And I sort of have changed my, I've changed my tune on that whole thing now. And I think they're lovely. I think they're lovely gestures to do for people who have, who have lost a loved one or to celebrate a great moment. So another topic that actually is controversial around this house, because I like sweet peas. Kelly does not like sweet peas. Uh, Tell us about your sweet peas. I love sweet peas. You know, I didn't know what a sweet pea was until, I don't know, maybe five years ago, but in terms of by name. But I know that I remember as like a child, one of my early gardening memories was going somewhere. My mom didn't grow them, but going somewhere 
and smelling these flowers and that scent you know they say that your olfactory system is is the most powerful one when it connects to memories and i think that must be true in this case because i remember smelling sweet peas and thinking it was the most amazing thing i'd ever smelled in my life and i never really knew what it was i knew it was some sort of flower i didn't know what it was so it wasn't until many many years later and it was another one of those things that is it's not very common to grow here and so i thought well i guess we can't grow sweet peas here and then i started looking into there's no reason you can't grow sweet peas here they grow great here Actually, they grow particularly good for us by the lake because we're a little cooler. Um, so when they're when it's too hot for them to grow in many places, we're still doing fine with them. But the thing with sweet peas is that you almost always have to grow them from seed by yourself because I've not found them very often in nurseries. Right. So so I, I sort of got into into sweet peas and then I started because why wouldn't you just go order your sweet peas from England? which is like sweet pea capital of the world. Mm. So I don't know how that happened, but I found a nursery, a sweet pea specialist seed place in in England, and and I've ordered from them. I've ordered in the United States too, but I've not liked the flowers as much. So I order those, and I grow those from seed every year. Um, In fact, I just planted mine out this past weekend, and I I hope they're nice. I, I think they're the most lovely flowers you could possibly have, and I plant them now only where we're going to be walking. I plant them right next to our back stairs and right along our path so that they're right in your face and you can smell them all the time because it, it's it's my by far my favorite scented flower. Yeah, me too. And uh, do you start them indoors? I do. I start a lot of seeds indoors. I have I, the seed starting operation gets bigger every year, much to the chagrin of, of my husband because it takes over like an entire room in our house but I do start them I do start them indoors and I have girl I have heat mats and grow lights and I start them inside and then I move them outside to sort of a temporary greenhouse that we set up set up to harden everything off and then into the garden they go what kind of grow lights do you have I have two t5 uh, which are the skinny fluorescent bulbs and then just this year I needed another grow light so I added in um, an as sort of relatively inexpensive LED grow light just to see how just to see how it would work. And it's been sort of an interesting experiment. I find that it doesn't cast as broad of a light as as the other lights do. So I don't feel like I'm getting as much light for the area that I do with the T fives. On the other hand, certainly it's far less energy use, which is mm. great. And um, my only other complaint with this is that there's a fan that's built into the circuit on it, so you can kind of hear it if you're sitting in the room. It's not loud. It's just it's just there. Um, so eventually I'd like to go to all, all LED lights um, just from a cost savings point of view because I've been running – I just turned off the grow lights this past weekend, and I've been running grow lights since February. So that's a lot of months with lights on 18 yeah. hours a day. Right, right, right. So are you working on anything new right now? Any new blog posts coming up, new projects that you can talk about that aren't secret? Oh, sure. There's, I don't have a lot of secret stuff going on. <laughs> so one of the things that I did this past weekend, and I'm going to be putting this up on the blog very, very soon, is I have always wanted a lavender-lined path. And for you, I mean, since before I owned a house, I wanted a lavender-lined path. Um, but I've always been concerned about growing lavender. I always thought it was difficult to grow. So I 
a few years ago, I planted a lavender called Phenomenal Lavender, which I think does very, very well in cold areas and very well in hot areas. And I had great luck with it. It grew well. I had tried other kinds of, of lavender before that and didn't have great luck with it. But I also learned that the trick with lavender is that it wants amazing drainage. And I have pretty good drainage in most parts of the garden, but the sandy as my soil is. But it really wants good drainage, and it wants pretty poor soil, um, which because I have amended my soil over all these years, ironically, I don't have very poor soil, which is sort of a funny problem to have. So for years, instead of having a lavender light path, I've had, I've used Nepeta as a, as a catmint, as an alternative. Kind of the same idea. It has sort of gray foliage and blue flowers and kind of has a scent as you walk by it and brush up against it. But it wasn't quite the look I was going for. Because this winter was so bad, I lost almost every one of the catmints that was growing along my path. Mm. So I had to replant that path anyway. So this year I decided to bite the bullet and I just went for the lavender path. So I, I just planted it up and I put, um, I actually buy chicken starter grit from the feed store, mm-hmm. which is, which is you know, gravel, basically very fine pieces of gravel granite i guess and i plant the lavender in addition to amending all the soil around it with that heavily i plant the lavender in i stick a whole bunch of it in the bottom of the hole to really increase the drainage and i planted 18 phenomenal lavender plants this weekend and i'm going to cross my finger that they Uh grow great this summer and hope that they that the majority of them get through the winter. I don't mind replacing a few, but I'd be very sad if I lost the whole lot again. So I'm excited about it because it's something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. And I'm just kind of, it's a little bit of an experiment crossing my fingers that that'll work. So that's a big thing. And then my ongoing project is I sort of renovated um, a garden last year and I'm doing this kind of crazy kind of half formal, half, half, I don't even know how to describe it. It's unlike a garden I've ever seen before. It's an oval, and I'm divided into very formal paths, but each section is divided into a specific plant. So there'll be 12 plants, one in each section fully planted. It might be that I'm not sure if it's going to work. It's truly a garden experiment um, because it might look really silly with the rest of my sort of free-flowing garden, but I just want to try something different, and I like doing that. I like just doing the things that I like in my garden because what I've learned is no matter what I do in my garden, I have a neighbor who will come by and say, oh, why are you doing that? And kind of give you the, the hairy eyeball about <laughs> something that they think is strange. And gosh, what I've learned, if I've learned nothing else, it's that just garden for yourself because that's the only person your garden has to make happy. And who cares what anyone else thinks about it? You're the one who's living with the garden. So make yourself happy in your garden and forget what anyone else thinks about it because it doesn't really matter. <laughs> right. So if people want to read your blog, uh, where should they go? And uh, I assume you have Facebook and all the usual social media channels. How can people connect with you and find out more about what you're up to? So the blog is called The Impatient Gardener, and it's at theimpatientgardener.com. And uh, Facebook is Facebook slash Impatient Gardener. It's Impatient Gardener on uh, Instagram. Twitter is Impatient Garden with no ER because it wouldn't fit to add to <laughs> ER. So anyway, some 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 variation of Impatient Gardener will get you to most places to be on the internet. Great. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thanks so much, Eric. It was great talking with you. That was Aaron Shannon. You can find her blog at theimpatientgardener.com. 
You can find her on Facebook and Instagram at Impatient Gardener and on Twitter at Impatient Garden. There is links in the show notes. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for supporting this podcast. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are at Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple Podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.